Hi, and welcome to the Vocational Education Podcast. Hi, my name's Dan Hill, and welcome to the Vocational Education Podcast, episode number five. The main topics of today's discussions are average pay rates of trainers, contract or employed, and the qualifications you think are required to train our trainers. But first, let's have a listen to the news. The National Adult Language Literacy and Numeracy Assessment Conference 2013 is now on the cards. Uh, its theme is building on evidence to improve skills, and the venue is the Ultimo College in Sydney, uh, New South Wales, and the dates are the 9th and 10th of May 2013. To find out more about this particular event, please go to the ACER, that's ACER website, the Australian Council for Educational Research, and you can find all the details there, and you can nominate. Also getting on the podcast bandwagon are the NCVER, or is the NCVER, whichever way you'd like to say it. The NCVER now have a podcast with Roger Harris and Michelle Simmons, or Simons, my apologies. This is a phone interview conducted uh, recently about the two sides of the same coin, leaders and private providers juggling educational and business imperatives. Interesting conversation, uh, so please, uh, you can go to the NCVR website and actually download that podcast and listen to that one too. Now, there's an opportunity for those content developers out there. The opportunity is for e-learning content uh, to support equity in VET. The projects will be managed through the broadband content services activity uh, of the National VET e-learning strategy, a joint initiative of the Australian and state and territory governments. Expressions of interest must be lodged by 5pm tomorrow. That's Friday the 23rd of November 2012. For more information, please go to the Flexible Learning Toolboxes website. So let's get on to our main topic for the day, which is, according to Seek.com, average pay rates for vocational trainers have fallen in the last 12 months. This was posed on our LinkedIn group, and we ask for your opinion. We've got a few in. Ben Gomez since, uh, says that since... The Immigration Department has made changes under which international students can obtain a student visa, especially in areas of hairdressing and commercial cookery. There's been a huge reduction in international student arrival. This has resulted in the closure of many RTOs between 2010 and 2011, and the market is currently flooded with trainers. A simple case of supply and demand, he says. Government has also reduced funding in business qualifications. Therefore, there will be lesser demand for trainers and employers, RTOs in other words, uh, and they can offer lower rates. It's a take-it-or-leave-it attitude. Thanks, Ben Gomez. Lee Perlitz has also commented, thanks, Lee. She says that I think a large part of the reason might be, in fact, that government funding has decreased significantly and many RTOs are struggling to find out new income streams, making it necessary for them to reduce expenses such as trainer wages and rates. Maha Hamad says, too many trainers completed their training is an RPL process without having enough experience and they don't invest the effort or uh, to train uh, as well as they should and they are very competitive in their fees. Uh, Maha's point is a very interesting one. This uh, really relates to the qualities of trainers. Um, 
in the vet sector, and we are going to talk about that a bit later on this podcast. So thanks, Maha, for raising that one at this point in time. And lastly, uh, Vivian Tran has, uh, has agreed with Ben, Ben Gomez's points, stating that she's just implemented e-learning and that our staff have been reduced from five to three. So the competitive nature and the business nature of running an RTO is really affecting not just trainer wages, but their employability and the supply and demand factor where there are an oversupply of very well qualified trainers perhaps out there looking for work and therefore the competitive nature of the market is that they can offer lower wages to attract these people. And look, if you've been affected by this supply and demand issue or just the wages issue, I'd love to hear from you. You can comment on our LinkedIn group, Vocational Education Podcast, or you can start a conversation or you can email us at VEP, that's Vocational Education Podcast, VEP at danhill.com.au. A very popular discussion on the RTO Professional Discussion Group on LinkedIn is what qualifications or experience should the person who delivers, assesses the CERT for and TAE possess? Now, the concern seems to be raised because there is an increasing amount of observable deficiencies out there in trainers. This, by all means, isn't painting a picture or a bad picture of all trainers. To keep this into some sort of context, over 30,000 people enroll in the Certificate for in Training Assessment uh, each year, or they did at least in 2011. So it gives you some sort of scope of just how many people it, um, it concerns. Now, some people take the role of a trainer as a profession. Others see it as a means to an end. Uh, this will get me the job. Others see it as a compliance issue. In other words, they get the qualification because they have to get it. When you're training the trainers, these are some of the questions that must be asked up front to decide on your approach to training them. And the only reason or the only way you're going to know the correct approach is to be prepared to have answers or activities or options for those people depending on their reason for getting that qualification. Some of the discussion was very interesting. There's over 92 comments and believe me, I will not be reading 92 comments. But um, some of the standouts uh, by Keen W., in its communique number three, the NSSC had spelt out what it takes to be a trainer, what it takes to be a trainer and assessor. And he agrees with the comment originator, Wendy, that a TAE diploma is not necessary to train the TAE 40110. Instead, he lists a number of qualities, including uh, adherence to a code of practice, uh, willingness to give and share experiences, and so forth. Others have made reference to the fact that IPSA, the people who've obviously written and produced the TAE training package, do have a lot of guidelines available and they do have some say into how the TAE should be trained. However, up until now, most, and if not all, uh, vet qualifications only require, under the, the old AQTF, only require the qualification that is to be trained. So the person only needs that qualification to train that qualification. Talking from experience, when I first got my TAA, I was thrust into training the TAA within a few weeks. And I can vouch for the fact that I have become a better trainer since, but at the start, I was fairly naive. Uh, these are years ago, of course, now, but, um, but it's relevant to the discussion because there are trainers being popped out, for want of a better term, 
all the time from RTOs. Unbelievable! This is ridiculous. Among the discussion is a propensity to forward the attributes of those who have higher degree qualifications. In other words, getting a degree or a master's or an even, even a doctorate uh, in some vocational education sphere. Does that make the person a better trainer slash teacher? Uh, not necessarily. Uh, it can't. It's uh, what they call a non sequitur argument. One does not necessarily lead to the other. However, there are lots of comments stating that the desire to learn seems to affect the person's approach to teaching. So the more interested they are in learning, the more interested they are in training. And this, of course, would be welcomed by any student cohort being taught by such a person. Anyway, this is a controversial topic. Uh, some people state that there is no need for extra qualifications. A lot say there is. And some say there's a lot of need for experienced people. There's no point training it if you've just got qualifications and no experience. I tend to agree. Have your say. Uh, you can either comment on that particular comment page or you can even uh, throw your two cents into our particular group as well. Well, today I'm joined by uh, Mark Ratcliffe from Mr. Wed. Now, Mark, just give us a quick synopsis of your uh, of your business model. Uh, it's a very successful one from what I understand, but um, yeah, just uh, give us a bit of background and, and, and describe it to me and our listeners. Yeah, I mean, but basically we, we focus and specialize in trainer training. So, you know, these days the, 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 uh, the suite of, of Tay 10 products, um, and we also have a trainer trainer boot camp, which you recently added to the, to the uh, uh, suite of products there. Uh, so essentially we, we, that's, that's all that we do is, is, is trainer training, training, you know, managers, training managers and, and uh, entry-level trainers. Um, it, it's built on a, a very heavy public schedule. So we, we have dedicated training facilities in Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne, Adelaide, Newcastle, and in Perth. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we pretty much run uh, our, our courses on a, on, a, on a cycle at each of those locations. And then from that, we, we feed through uh, customised courses based on other specialist needs. Um, but very heavy public schedule followed by the, the, the custom stuff. Okay. Do you have any, um, any government-funded uh, training at all? Nothing directly. Like, we don't have uh, big... Uh, you know, contracts or anything like that that are part of, say, in the old days we used to have things like PPP and so forth, but, but there's nothing really like that. Uh, we do have a lot of government clients, so, so there is sort of government money being, being spent on these sorts of courses, but uh, uh, not, nothing, you know, directly like, you know, uh, uh, fully funding the spaces for unemployed candidates, let's say, which is, uh, you know, essentially what PPP was doing for a while. Yeah, now PPP was a, a success for one of a better term, um, but um, how would you differ between, say, uh, corporate clients and public clients? I, I heard you mention public a couple of times there. Um, for a business, what's the most profitable for you to, to chase, if you like, as far as marketing dollar versus what you get back? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, um, Dan, because you know we have we have this come up almost every every month. Our, our financial controller crunches the numbers and said, "Mark, you need to be doing more of these and less of these." Uh, yeah, certainly, for bang for our buck, our, our, our corporate or our custom courses are probably more profitable. Um, having said that, I'm I'm still committed to the original uh, model, which is you know we have our own centres, we have a, 
a heavy public schedule, which we have a cycle of training, that kind of pays the bills. Anything additional to that uh, is is really what enables our growth. And that, that, that's, that's been the plan the last 13 years, and it's working. So I'm not going to mess with that too much. Speaking of, uh, of growth, off air we were talking briefly about the fact that um, RTOs don't necessarily run as businesses, and yet some businesses, uh, sorry, some RTOs do, and uh, yours I think is a great example of that. So please tell me, uh, how important is growth to an RTO? You know, it's it's another excellent question. I think you know, like like it's been said in many cases before. If you're not you're not growing, you're actually declining, and there's a natural cycle to any business. And an RTO is a business, even if you're a non-for-profit RTO. You still need to consider growth opportunities and and all that comes with that. Uh, if I can give you a, a quick example of what I mean by that, is that every now and again you'll see some people. You think these are fantastic. How do I get them in the business? We don't have the space for them right now. But if we can park that talent and then get them into the business uh, at a later point, uh, as long as we're not losing you know money, then 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 we can continue to do that. So if you've got a growth strategy, you know that eventually you can get those people in. And, and, and they've been building up and building confidence and, and honing their skills so they're, they're ready to go once once the opportunity presents themselves. And uh, we've had two of those people that, you know, about three years ago, I think to the day, uh, I saw them and thought, I need these guys in the business. They were just coming out of a redundancy situation and I offered them positions in the business and, and now they're holding senior positions in our business, um, which, you know, is really... Uh, paid faith in, 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 in that approach. However, if we didn't have a growth strategy, I would have never been able to afford them, if that makes sense. Yeah, speaking of talent, um, I noticed that you're an award-winning business. Yeah, I mean, we're a four-time Australian Best Place to Work and, and twice in the top 10. And it's, there's, a, there's a study that's done by the Great Places to Work Institute, which uh, involves, uh, a, I think they call it a, a cultural study, uh, as well as a survey of staff. So essentially what happens is they, 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 there's no right or wrong answers. They, they basically ask, how do you do all of these different things and give examples as evidence of what you do? Uh, and then they've got the, 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 the employer, employee survey, I should say, which goes directly to um, the employees. And then they go to like a, a unique, they've got like a unique um, code that they press on the link on the email, and then they they basically rate the business on a whole bunch of different metrics. Uh, so you know it's something that that's at arm's length. So yeah, the first year we actually rated at number eight in Australia, uh, which was a surprise because you know it was our first first year and everything, and this is four years ago. Um, and you know it's it's sort of really great that not only uh, our staff obviously think that that we're trying to do things that genuinely support them and, and give them a great place to work. Uh, but but an independent organisation in the Great Places to Work Institute sees through our our cultural audit that in fact we are doing those things. We are you know walking the walk and talking the talk. How important is that to you as a business owner? You know, as one of those things when I saw the, those awards, I thought you know I'm not sure that we are actually a great place to work. I mean, I, I strive to be and always looking for innovation and, and, and places for our staff to get opportunities that they would get nowhere else. I'm also mindful of the fact we're still a, a reasonably small organisation, so for me to retain great talent, I have to be innovative and give, give, give them opportunities that perhaps they wouldn't get at a, at a much larger organisation, and we've been able to you know, hold staff and, and keep loyalty that way. So it's important to me from that perspective that the award itself is, 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 is a great accolade, but it's more important that you know we 
are actually achieving the you know the, the 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 promise that we make to our staff and consistently doing that. As I said, four years in a row to to, to be on that list uh, means that we have some sustainability to those those uh, you know that, that, those those plans and that ethos. Great. When when it comes to growth and uh, opportunity, how do you see vocational education the way it's run in Australia transferred overseas? Because I see you've started uh, in yeah. India. Uh, t- tell me about taking that um, system overseas. Does it work and can we do it? Uh, yes and yes. <laughs> okay. I mean, the, the, the great new challenge for us as vocational educators in Australia is, 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 a, is a global reach. And it's something that I'm 100% committed to. And, you know, certainly as, as I transition myself out of, you know, senior roles in the business, this business, the domestic business, if you like, you know, I'm really trying to release myself to pursue that international work. Uh, you know, from a, a pure growth perspective, it makes sense. From an opportunity perspective, we've got countries such as India who are screaming out for quality education. They've got a, uh, you know, a really big middle class that want great education options for their, their children um, and as, as well as for themselves. So, you know, it, 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 it's, it's something that I think that many Australian RTOs could be doing and should be doing, and many of them are, by the way, mm. um, a lot of them under the radar too. Uh, but I think that particularly the private ones have a great capacity to have boutique training in international locations. I think, you know, the TAFEs can provide some really nice, robust, larger-scale, um, you know, training and things like hospitality and so forth. I think that's great. But, but in other, other spaces where it really is boutique, uh, that's where our, our, our local you know, vocational providers can come in and offer a really great service and, and you know, make some money from it too, which is great. Do you see that the Australian system um, is better or worse than those you've seen overseas? What stands out to you? I mean, you've travelled a bit. What stands out to you as, as the best vocational education system that you've seen? I don't want to say in the world, but that you've yeah, seen. Yeah, what I've seen. I mean, you know, I think that, that we've got a lot to be proud of in Australia and it's hard to be, hard not to be parochial about it. It just sounds like, yeah, yeah, rah, 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 we're fantastic. But, you know, for, for all that we say about what's broken about our system, we, we should be very proud about what it is doing and what it, what it has achieved. And certainly the last 15 years, we've seen a tremendous uh, increase in, in you know, the credibility of our industry, the, 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 you know, the, the consistency, the transferability across the, the, the states. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a really great space to be in at this stage, and, and it can only get better. Um, and you know, that, that particular uh, you know, product, if you like, our vocational system, transfers very well into other spaces. You know, uh, places like Singapore uh, used the, our system as the basis for their system. Uh, in South Africa, it's the same. It's not, not exactly the same as ours, but they've, they've used ours as a basis and used Australian consultants to, to enable their system to work. And I think what we've got right in this country is that we've got a partnership between government and industry. Uh, a lot of other countries that have tried on vocational education have either had it mandated by government and imposed upon them, uh, or it's just been you know, industry doing their own th- thing. And, and every, every industry has their own version of it, uh, which is like the dark old days in Australia where you go from one state to another and they have a different set of rules and you have to get the qualification again. Mm. So I, I think that the way that we've packaged up competencies and forever looking at the compliance angle to, to, to make sure that those that are you know, training and assessing this are, are held to a higher standard, uh, this is something that's very portable, very transferable and certainly 
very marketable in those other contexts. So I truly believe that we've got some of the best vocational training uh, as, a, as an industry in the world. It doesn't mean we're doing it uh, as good as ev 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 everybody else, but I, I certainly think there's lots of, lots of really positive work that we're doing and you know, it really should hold it out as, as some of the best stuff um, you know, that there's available globally. If I can, can I ask you about the quality of trainer trainers? In other words, uh, we, we rely on the Certificate 4 in Training Assessment as the benchmark. Um, what are your uh, personal opinions about having that qualification to train that qualification? Do you think that's enough? Do you think there's more required qualification-wise? Or you know, just give us your thoughts there. Yeah, you know, it's, <laughs> it's one of the, I think it's, it's harder than it sounds. Um, in a perfect world, on paper, you'd love to think that those who are responsible for training others to be great trainers have more than just a certificate for. Uh, having said that, you know, in, in the 13 years that I've been in, involved with this business, I've had some fantastic facilitators that uh, I found because they came to us uh, in the Cert 4 and they, they, they had, you know, 20, 30, 40 years of experience, but none of it was recognised and they were getting their Cert 4 to get that affirmation and confirmation. So I'm thinking, well, you know, someone with 30 or 40 years of experience who's done it all before but just didn't have the bit of paper uh, and now has the Cert 4, I think it's great. Whereas someone who's a school leaver who does a Cert 4, I, I don't think is ready to, to be a, not necessarily ready to be, be a great trainer. So the, the, the question you're asking is one which I think is contextual mm -hmm. um, and to mandate one way or the other, I think disadvantages those that genuinely have great skills, have got runs on the board, but not necessarily in a competency-based system, but have then demonstrated that through their attainment of the Cert 4 um, versus you know, those that are habitual, habitual uh, students. They've got every, every qualification under the sun, but have never actually practiced in industry. You know? mm. So it's, 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 that, it's that, you know, that juggle. Yeah. Um, but, you know, go on, sorry. No, I was just going to say, I was, I was at a TAFE teachers conference a couple of years ago now um, in Brisbane, and they were saying, uh, by they, I mean, that the presenter was um, putting forward her opinion. She was a professor in education from Melbourne. And she was saying that um, she believes that if you're going to train other trainers, you should have a degree. <laughs> so tell me, what, what do you think? Well, I think, I think I've kind of uh, intimated the last response there that, you know, we might have someone that's, that's, that's really a, an effective facilitator. And there's a difference between the scholarly journey, journey in, a, in a degree as it is in a vocational sense. So someone that's been out there on the coalface doing that, uh, I think, you know, can, can be as effective and sometimes more effective than someone that's got, got degrees. Um, and, you know, we've got a balance of both. I mean, you know, I've... I've I've, I've gone the scholarly pathway myself and, and, you know, I've gone through to a master's in adult and workplace education. And we've got plenty of other people in the business that have got, you know, more than, more than one degree in our training team. And then we've got others that have had just a bucket load of experience in vocational roles, training, facilitating, coaching, mentoring, and then they've, they've come in and done their Cert 4 and then their, their diploma, either the old one or the new one. And, you know, they're, they're really job-ready and, and you know, really provide great um, options to our, our students, and, and sometimes I find, even myself, that I can get a bit academic, <laughs> you know, if, if, I, if, I, if I'm pushed, because that's, that's where I've, I've gone to, whereas sometimes people just need a common sense answer to something, and, you know, again, I'm talking, talking in circles, not answering your question, <laughs> but I, I'm, I'm trying to provide a, a, balanced, uh, a balanced view of it. I, I think that 
that just to put a, a line, line in the sand to say everyone that teaches it must have a degree, I think disadvantages those who are genuinely uh, capable of, of delivering outstanding outcomes to participants. Um, and, and it doesn't guarantee that, that those that do possess the degree are actually suitable to, to be great coaches and mentors to beginning trainers. Yeah, look, I, I really want to agree with you, um, but I'm not supposed to have an opinion on a show like this. So, <laughs> no, I, I think that's a, a really good comment. And uh, there was a, a LinkedIn conversation regarding that recently that I was following with over um, 110 comments now and all going off on different tangents about uh, whether they do or don't need a degree. And uh, I think your answer is quite perfect. It's contextual. And if the person's got experience, I think they've got, they're going to be a, a good trainer. And uh, if they've just got the propensity and competencies to do that sort of thing as well. Perhaps the, the answer is in the how do we define what a, a capable and appropriate uh, you know, trainer trainer mm. is. And, and you know, perhaps that's where we can find some common ground there. If we're sort of saying, well, someone who possesses a degree, if that's what you're saying, should be the line in the sand, what is it that you're looking for in that? Is it years of experience? Is it, is it scholarly uh, writing and communication activities? Is it uh, an ability to communicate face-to-face? Uh, -face? What is it that you're looking for? And can we, can we capture that in some other way? Uh, or equivalent, you know, as we often use in our industry. And if that's the case, I'd be happy to support that because, you know, the guys I've got on my team are just outstanding trainers and facilitators and get fantastic results. So, you know, some have degrees, some don't. And, you know, it's, it's what we do with them to, to try to uh, get them to understand the journey that our participants need to be on uh, and, and, and the outcomes that, that they need that, that, are, that are more than just what the training package says. I mean, let, let's face it, it's one of those things where uh, you can do the, the, the bare minimum and get them through, but we want people to be you know, capable trainers, great advocates for our industry, and, and certainly from my perspective, great advocates for our organisation. You know, if we train trainers, that's what we do. We obviously need graduates who are, are great trainers mm. so that, that, that uh, you know, that word of mouth can continue to support our growth in the future. Yeah. Mark Radcliffe, thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure. The music we use on this podcast is kindly made available by dano at danosongs.com.